Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey, podcast listeners, Al Martin here. Hope everybody is well. Today, I have a distinguished guest, my good friend, Jean-Claude Mamou. But I'm going to call you JC. Is that okay? That's exactly how people are calling me, so that's perfect. I've known JC for a while. He's one of the architects, the, the brilliant minds within our organization, uh, transforming data integration in our governance uh, portfolio. That's to be fully cloud native, et cetera. He's got the goods. Just a little bit more. He's a chief architect of information integration and governance portfolio. I don't like to always mention products, but that includes our, our data stage product and other products like enabling uh, WKC, Watson Knowledge Catalog, built on a foundation of being hybrid data fabric. All right, look, JC, why don't you describe your experience, what you're doing now, and then we'll go from there. Yes, so as you said, I'm uh, the lead architect for Watson Knowledge Catalog and, and Data Stage. Over the past you know, couple of years, we've been reinventing these tools by creating a cloud-native versions uh, of them and deploying them on the as a software, as a service, and also as part of Cloud Pack for Data. So we have both uh, deployment models, and we've been busy doing that for the past couple of years. Back up for me a second. I'm going to jump into that and explain to the users what that means. Cloud Pack for Data, by example, being microservices, what data stage and WKC is from a conceptual perspective. But where do you come from? What's your history? Tell us a little bit about your experience. So, as you said, I'm French. I've been in the US for more than 20 years now. Still have my French accent, so that's probably never going to go away. Since I'm in the US, I've been working on data integration for a long time and also on XML databases at some point. And for the past few years, I've been working half and half between data integration and uh, governance. Nice. You love data integration and governance because you've been doing it a long time. Yeah, I've been doing that for a long time. And I think what is very exciting is the opportunities that we have to bring these two things together in a much deeper way so that whatever we do in governance can be surfaced uh, in tools like data integration so that a data engineer who is working with our data integration tools can find the actual business definition of the data that he's working with or can uh, make sure that the data is, to, is about to use uh, in a data integration job is of good quality. So trying to bring together all these technologies is really what's going to make a difference as part of a platform. Before I dive into that, where are you uh, located? I'm in Massachusetts. What brought you to uh, Massachusetts? How did you end up here? Actually, I was uh, working in Denver, Colorado. For, I've been in Denver for four years with a company called Essential Software. Yeah. We sold 90% of the business that was in Denver to IBM at that time. Yeah. And uh, I moved to Massachusetts where the headquarter of Essential Software was. That was what, 2004? It was 2001. 2001. Well, so hold on. 
Hold on. And then, and then, Essential was acquired later by IBM in 2005. All right. So that's where I was going because the reason is, you know how I know that, right? Because I came from Informix. Yeah. So it was 2001. And then the interesting thing is uh, IBM bought half the company in 2001, which was the the database side, if you will, uh, the Informix side, and then bought the Essential side in 2005. I missed it by a year. So you came over with in 2005. Then. Exactly. All right. Were you with somebody else before you were with Informix in Essential? I was. I studied in a startup in France that was called O2 Technology. We were building an object database at the time. And uh, that object, I mean, O2 was acquired by a company called Unidata that was in Denver. That's why I ended up in Denver. Nice. And then you moved to Massachusetts because why? Because all the stuff that was in Denver was sold uh, to IBM when as part of Informix. Oh, I see. And then I joined the, the rest of the crew in, in uh, Massachusetts at that time. All right. So let's dive into data integration and governance. Let's have a little fun with it here. Rather than talk product names, I want to talk some of the industry challenges what are the industry challenges? Where have we come from and where are we going? Let's start with integration first. So with integration, I think the what's going to be interesting uh, in the future is that the type of workloads are changing, right? So in the past, we are seeing very traditional workloads where people were building data warehouse using you know traditional data sources, databases, files, and then we're creating you know, star schemas and, and building data warehouses for many different usage. Uh, now we are seeing a lot more diverse data sources, data sources that are on the web, data sources that are geographically dispersed. Uh, with the emergence of things like hybrid cloud, we see people having data in multiple clouds, trying to bring it together. I mean, data warehouse is is obviously still important, but we start also seeing people putting data in cloud object storages and accessing data for various reasons, right? I mean, some very new type of workloads is people need to create data in order to train machine learning models. So you need to take your data and putting in a shape that is expected by your machine learning model. So these are the type of new workload that we see a lot in uh, data integration. All right. I'm going to come back to that. I've got more some questions, but let's go into governance. Is there integration without governance today? I mean, at least hand in hand, you always got to say integration and governance. And we certainly do inside IBM, but are they exclusive to one another? Or? You can do both separately, but it's very difficult to do data integration without good governance. Because if you don't understand the data that you are dealing with, if you don't pay attention to the quality of your data, uh, what you are going to produce in data integration is probably going to be garbage, right? So garbage in, garbage out. Without a good governance processes, you are likely to make mistakes when you do things like data integration or machine learning for the same reason. So what you're telling me, though, is they're inseparable in, in the sense that I would imagine if you're going to do data integration, you want to have governance along the way. Otherwise, you're going to create a mess that somebody else has to clean up separately. Yeah, exactly. 
It's perfectly right. You, you can do governance without data integration. You cannot really do data integration without governance. You governance without integration, you can't do integration without governance. Is that what you said? Yep. I see what you mean. All right, I got it. Look, going back to integration, look, I understand. So you're, you're saying, look, we come in from data warehousing, we're heading to multiple data sources on the web, hence hybrid cloud. By the way, when you talk about the star schemas, like I was looking back in, in, at my, actually the books I have in back of me, one of the books is the Data Warehouse Toolkit. Do you remember the name of a gentleman by the name of Richard Kimball? Yep. I think he wrote that book, which talked about how to set up star schemas, et cetera. Are stars schemas defunct now? Are there no such thing as star schemas? I mean, it's, it still exists. I mean, you still have traditional data warehouses. What's interesting right now is the emergence of these new workloads, right? And people don't do just static batch ETLs. You have things that are a lot more dynamic. You have a lot of streaming data coming. You have a lot of new type of data coming. You know, hierarchical data, JSON data, so you have a lot of these new data coming that are becoming more and more important in the context of data integration. You know, originally when you had databases that were very OLTP driven, index driven, gave rise to star schemas so that in, from a performance standpoint, uh, you could look across <clears throat> the data warehouse using a star schema to be able to, to bring that data in a reasonable time frame. Now you're talking multiple data sources on the web. You're talking in different formats, unstructured, JSON, whatever. So now what is the new solution to be able to bring all that together? I know you're working on some of that today, but tell us about it. From that integration perspective, again, we need to be able to push part of the workload where the data is, right? We need to be able to if you have data in IBM Cloud, in AWS, in Azure, you need to be able to take your workload and push it to the data so that you don't move data across multiple networks, uh, which is very expensive because you need to pay egress cost when you move data out of a cloud. And then you have a lot of latency. So being able to push the processing where the data is is providing a lot of gains for customers in terms of cost, in terms of efficiency, in terms of uh, performance. So that's one of the things we are doing, which is leveraging what we do at IBM called IBM Satellite uh, to be able to push the data from the control plane, let's say on the IBM cloud, and push the processing to, let's say, AWS if the data is on AWS. And customers love that. All right. So I want to talk about that, pushing the workload where the data is. I mean, you're an architect. You've been doing this a while. You know data integration and governance. In terms of integration, what is the set of principles that you have? Like if you're advising a client, what are those principles? I know one, you just said, I want to push the workload where the data is. What other principles do you have that come off the top of your head? Understand your data. I think that's probably the most important thing that you can do. And, and that goes back to governance, by the way, which is one of our customers, they were making business decision using some BI reports, like many companies do that. And at some point they started 
doing some governance and including governance in their processes. And they started to realize that all the decisions that they were doing were actually based on the wrong data. Why? Because uh, some data engineers that were kind of creating the data maps from where they are creating these reports thought he was using a particular colon in a particular table and that that colon has a specific meaning, but he was using the wrong colon. So pretty much taking the wrong data or with the data with the, the different meaning, the different business meaning, and all their reports were based on these wrong data. So very small mistake, but the consequences of these mistakes are huge. So it was not about the data integration process. It was because that data engineer didn't understand the data he was actually manipulating and transforming in his jobs. So this is why governance, understanding the data, making sure the data quality of the data is, is super important when, when you are doing data integration. I got a couple questions on that. So I got two now. Putting the workload where the data is, understanding your data, which really ties into governance. Any others that you say, look, you got to do X, Y, or Z? You need to understand what are your critical data. Not all data has the same importance. In data quality, what we call critical data elements is what is the data that is going to make your project successful. So if, let's say, let's take an example, if the project that you are working on is about, are you trying to identify PII data for a regulatory compliance project? Or are you trying to identify critical customers for your next marketing campaign? The critical data elements for, with this, for these two examples are probably very different. So you need to understand what is your critical data. And once you have identified your critical data elements, you need to do a very deep data quality assessment and making sure that you are dealing with good quality data for what matters in your project. And I think that's also a very important part of the process. Is that a sub-bullet, uh, essentially, of understanding your data then? I think it's a little bit different. Understanding the data means understanding the, oh, that column is a social security number. That column is a credit card number. And how do they relate to business, the business terms, the, the semantics that you are dealing with in your business? So that's really about understanding the type of data you are dealing with. The data quality is understanding if the actual data is of good quality. If you have a colon that is a social security number, are you missing some of the data? Or do you have data that is in the wrong format? It's actually not a social security number. So there is a difference between understanding the semantics of your data and then understanding the quality of the data. And both are equally important. Okay. If that makes sense. No, it makes sense. I, I got you. I got you. Pushing the, the workload where the data is, understanding your data, and understanding the critical data, the semantics of that data. Is that it? I know that these are very deep, each one of those. Uh, and I want to go back. That's where I'm heading. Anything else that you say, uh, like if you're going to do a billboard, would those be the three? Probably the three most important in my mind. All right, that makes sense. If you think of another one, well, you know, I know I'm putting you on the spot. 
All right, pushing the workload where the data is. You talk to this. The data is everywhere, as you mentioned, multiple cloud. That's why IBM has become a hybrid cloud company. That We firmly believe to solve the problems, we, we've got to be hybrid. You also mentioned a product that we have called IBM Satellite that's pushing the processing to uh, the cloud of choice or, or whatever. Can you explain what it means, the what and the how, I guess, of pushing workload where the data is? When we architecture uh, our products like uh, data storage, we make a difference between what we call the control plane, meaning where the place where we manage, create the jobs, manage the jobs, schedule the jobs, and then the data plane, which is where the job is actually running. So we have all our microservices, we have all our controlling uh, services in the control plane, and then we have the actual runtime on the data plane. And with IBM Satellite, we can take our data plane where the runtime is and push that runtime to multiple locations on different clouds or on-prem. So you can still have a single place where you create your job, where you manage your job, uh, where you do all the command and control type of thing. Uh, and then based on the type of data, or that you are dealing with in your jobs, you may decide to run that particular job on IBM Cloud, that other job on-prem, that other job on AWS, and potentially even create a workflow, an orchestration of job that run in different locations based on the data that you are dealing with. So just to restate, basically data stage, this is the tool that's an ETL tool you're saying that you can manage, create, schedule ETL jobs in kind of a development environment and then throw it on a data plane where you can, it's a runtime essentially on any cloud. I presume that when you say any cloud, that's IBM, that's AWS, that's Google, Microsoft, and Microsoft, or on premise. Exactly. Yeah. And we still have tons of customers that have just data on-premise, especially all the regulated industries that tend to have still a lot of data on-premises. So it's still very important to be able to push uh, workloads in their own data centers. So for the listeners, you know, to do this, obviously you need data stage. Maybe you're already using it. You know, that's where you're managing, creating your jobs. You need IBM Satellite, yes? Yes, Satellite, I guess the question I guess a user would ask is, why doesn't DataStage have that functionality? What's unique to IBM Satellite? It's the convenience that you have. IBM Satellites are piece of runtime that is securely connected to the IBM cloud that is managed and run by IBM on multiple clouds, on different clouds, on different data centers. So the a team at IBM has done the job of creating and managing all these runtimes in different clouds. And we just come and say, oh, I have my workload here. Let me push it to that satellite that already exists. It's um, the easy button. It's the very easy button. Absolutely. Good. I got it. So let me ask you this part of the question. You referred to this when we started. You referred to a product we called 
IBM Cloud Pack for Data, which is a microservices architecture uh, that you could leverage and then bring in other capabilities. So for those that aren't familiar with the name, just know it's microservices. Where does that come into play here? IBM Cloud Pack for Data is a platform. The benefit of a platform is that all the products that you put in that platform are sharing a lot of capabilities, are sharing a lot of uh, a common look and feel, are sharing a lot of underlying capabilities. So, for example, in Cloud Pack for Data, we have, a, let's say, a common connectivity layer. And whatever it's data stage, what's on knowledge catalog, what's on machine learning, auto-scale, auto-AI, uh, they are all sharing the same connectivity layer. They are all sharing the same authentication mechanism. They are all sharing the same metadata catalog that happens to be the Watson Knowledge Catalog. So you have many, many different products all related to data and data and AI uh, that are sharing tons of similar capabilities. So for the customer, it's finding you know, a lot of commonalities between all these products that they are using. It's also allowing us, the development teams, to only work on what matters to us and not creating all this infrastructure that each product requires because that infrastructure is provided by the platform. So, for example, when we built that stage uh, as cloud-native components, we really worked on all the data stage components. We didn't work on connectivity. We didn't work on security. We didn't work on a design canvas because all of that was coming with the platform. So we were able to work much faster and probably also providing something of much better quality because we were only focusing on a very uh, small part of, the, of what makes an entire product. Very good. I like it. So, I, you know, I think I got, but so could I use it if I didn't want to use a microservices architecture? If I said, hey, I just want to use data stage, would you advise that or would you say, hey? Just use Cloud Pack for data and only deploy data stage in it. And you have data stage. Why would I need the microservices or why would I want to put down that platform if I don't need it? I'm thinking from a client perspective. If they say, hey, look, all I want is data stage. Why can't I have a data stage of the old? What would you advise them? Um, that the fact that we have that platform makes it very simple for us to deploy the same product on-prem using CloudPack for Data software and on the cloud using CloudPack for Data as a service. For the customer, that's the guarantee that they can create jobs. And if today they are on-premise, they, they can run them on-premises. If tomorrow they decide to be on the cloud, they can take the same jobs, deploy them on the cloud. Or if they want to have an hybrid environment where they want half of their job to run on premises, half of their job to run on the cloud, they can do that very easily because we have the exact same product, the exact same set of microservices that we deploy in all these uh, deployment models. So that's a lot of security for the users and customers that what they do today can be migrated to a different environment in the future. So let me see if I can kind of summarize. Basically, use data stage. You know, the, the good news is, is you could use it, I think, standalone SaaS 
or you could use it for a cloud pack for data. Why wouldn't you use it for cloud pack for data and that microservices architecture? Because then you could take advantage of the entire platform. Like you could modernize your environment whenever you want it, like uh, the uh, machine learning capabilities, et cetera. And then you can get to any cloud by using IBM satellite. So with those three, you can pretty much do anything you want to do on any platform, grow as you want to grow. You're in a microservices architecture and you're cloud native. Exactly. I did pretty good, huh? <laughs> All right. That's just the first one. Let's go real quick to the, real quick, I say, uh, the understanding your data, the governance. So I get your story on the data engineer that didn't understand the data. I think it's a good story. The interesting thing for me is when we talk about understanding your data, it almost seems obvious. It seems obvious to the listener. But this is huge right now. A huge, huge, huge problem. And it's much difficult. I mean, there's data everywhere. So that mistake that you mentioned happens like probably a billion times a day. Exactly. So my question is, how do you avoid that? You know, what are the technology we can use to make that easy so we don't see those repetitive mistakes? That's what we do in governance, right? Understanding your data, you need to first profile your data. You need to look at your, and this, I mean, when you say you, our tools need to look at the data. So you need to point the tools to the data. And what we are going to do is profiling the data and we are going to classify the data. For example, in Watson Knowledge Catalog, we have out of the box 160, I think, data classes. And a data class is something that will recognize that, for example, a colon in the table is a street address, or is a zip code, or is a person name. So the ability of classifying the data is super important. That gives you a first level of understanding of the data. And of course, customers can create their own custom data classes. And a custom data class include some code that, or some method of matching the data with the data class definition. So it could be a regular expression, could be an enumeration, could be different ways that you give us as with a custom data class to decide what a colon is about. So that's the first thing which is important. And then, what customers are doing when they start a governance project is they need to model their business. They need to create an ontology made of business terms and the relationship between these business terms. A bank, that's a business term, has customers. That's another business term. A customer can be an account holder. An account you can create a, a large set of business terms with relationship that pretty much model all the business concepts that you are dealing with your particular business. And uh, we have something that we call the knowledge accelerators. And the knowledge accelerators are a set of business terms for specific industries. We do have healthcare, uh, financial services, insurance, and each knowledge accelerator potentially contains 5,000, 10,000 business terms. So that's a way to accelerate the creation of that knowledge and that business vocabulary representation. 
uh, that you need to start with. And then once you have that, our tools will take your colons and will say, oh, that colon is related to that particular business term in your ontology. So providing business meaning to your technical metadata, right? The technical metadata are tables and columns. And then you start associating business understanding, business meanings to that particular data. And that's where you start understanding your data. This is where your data engineer that was using the wrong colon can now take a colon and say, okay, what is the business definition of that colon? Do I really understand the semantics of that colon? And that's the critical piece that we are doing automatically when profiling and assigning business term in the data using heuristics and machine learning models that we run on the data. So here's my question. How much is really manual and how much is automated in all of what you just described? We try to automate as much as possible, but this is why you have data stewards. So the data stewards can look at what we've inferred, what we've predicted, and they can say, well, yes or no. And they can also define thresholds. So assign that business term if you are 90% sure that it's a valid match. And let me review all the assignments when the percentage of uh, certainty is between or is less than 90%. So there is a big part that can be automated. And then there is a part where the data steward can tell us, no, you were wrong. The right business term for that column is that. And the good thing is as the data steward does that, our machine learning models are being continuously trained. So the next time you try to assign business term, it will be better because we understood uh, based on previous corrections to be more accurate in the assignment of business terms. So if you have a lazy data steward, you can still have issues. But the more involved that data steward is, the more machine learning knowledge is going to be gathered by uh, the models such that it'll be less and less and less involvement required over time. Exactly. I mean, that constant, the continuous learning is critical in order to improve and getting better and better and better and better as you go. So correspondingly, a data steward's golf game should get better and better and better as they have to spend less time stewarding the data. Yep. All right. Understanding critical data. You got to hit me on that as well, just to make sure that the data quality that you mentioned that is separate from understanding your data number two. Understanding the data is really about understanding the, the semantics of the data, but then the data quality is about trusting your data. How much can I trust the data that I'm manipulating? So we talked about defining and uh, identifying your critical data elements, but then what else? What do you need? What can you do with that? So we have some data quality tools that are going to help you doing this data quality assessment. So we have a number of uh, data quality dimensions that we are going to test with your data. So the type of data quality dimension are things like data class violations. A data class violation is you have determined that a colon is a social security number. That's the data class. 
and then you have some data in the various rows of your table that don't match that particular social security number class. So that's a data class violation. You may have duplicated values once, even though your column is supposed to have unique values. Or you may have inconsistent capitalizations in your data. You may have missing values in your data. You may have suspect values, right? All the data in that particular look a certain way, but mm, some other data look a little bit different. So that's suspect. Uh, or you may have values out of range. You can define constraints and the data are breaking these constraints. So you have a number of quality dimension that we check and we assign data quality scores to each of your column. And then if our out-of-the-box uh, data quality dimensions are not enough, you can create data rules and data quality rules saying, oh, if that column has that value and that other column has that value, then the third column should have value X. We see customers creating thousands of data quality rules that are specific to what they do, specific to their data, specific to their domain, and then run these data quality rules to assess the data. But of course, that's not enough to assess the data. You need to continuously evaluate uh, the data quality because that can evolve over time. Hopefully, based on the initial assessment, some issues have been remediated, but it's possible that over time, new data are being ingested and that the data quality can go down. So being able to continuously monitor the data quality is critical for customers to trust the data and trust the reports or the, the prediction that they do with their machine learning models. They need to be able to trust. You need to make sure that at the source, your data is of high quality. What do you think is the number one data quality issue? And when I ask that, I'll give you my answer just out front. The good news is, is I'm seeing in the industry right now a trend where companies or even government, they have multiple departments. Uh, traditionally, they don't share data. They're very siloed. They just want control of their data for a number of different reasons. You know, some of them very valid, but they're finding out that if they share the data, they get better results. Like, you know, I think we did an effort with Sonoma County and we found that people that were on the streets usually had some kind of mental disorder. And if you put the legal department, I guess, with the police records, with some of the social areas, you put it all together, you can figure out, hey, this is the problem. This is how we could keep them uh, off the street and help them And as we move forward. Anyway, they start sharing data. Once you do that, a lot, you got a lot of the same data. It's redundant. It's a mess. I see that is the biggest issue that I face when I'm working with clients. What do you see as the biggest issue around data quality? Where the data is coming from is unknown in, in many cases. When the data is entered, people are usually lazy. So they are going to mistype a number of things. They are going to use abbreviation. When you compare data that's supposed to be the same, that has the same value, you will see slight differences in the values. Some people are going to spell my name, Jean-Claude, with a dash between Jean and Claude. Some people will put a space 
between Jean and Claude. Some people will put JC. Some people will put J dot C dot. That's still the same person at the end of the day. But I may have multiple tables, multiple databases where my name is spelled five different ways. How do you know that you are dealing with the same person? Or when you have street, can be ST, it can be street. So you have a lot of values, different values in the data to represent the same, the actual same data. And that's where we have an opportunity to do some automatic remediation of these data quality problems. Because that's the type of thing where we actually can, using standardization technique and matching techniques, we can detect that this particular data should be the same and then fix it automatically. Wow, this has been really good. I don't know if you expected to go down some of the holes that we went down today, JC, but it's terrific. Kate, our trusty, awesome producer out there, what do you think of all this? You know, I think it's just remarkable to listen to, and most of it, just being very straight about it, goes way over my head. But I love that you two know what you're talking about, and it is relatively simple. I love the language you've used to communicate it. JC, I have a question for you that I love to hear from people who are so technically knowledgeable and just in general, how are you inspired and how do you figure out your next innovation and what problem you want to solve? Because I could imagine that there's so many different threads that you could perhaps pull on. How are you inspired and how do you find your next innovation? Probably by listening to customers. Because at the end of the day, we need to solve problems that people really have. Usually when we talk to customers, they are going to ask us, oh, improve that feature or make that better. And then that's our job to ask them why. What are you really trying to achieve? What is really the problem that you are trying to resolve? And then when you start understanding the problem, really it's not about fixing that problem. It's about potentially you know, creating something different that, are going, that is going to solve their problem in a very different way, sometimes in a very innovative way, but not necessarily by improving something that we have, but, something, but doing something drastically different. And by listening and understanding what the, our, our customer problems are, we can actually find the next piece of technology or innovation that will solve their problem in a way that we didn't even anticipate before understanding what the actual problem was. That sounds fantastic. And do you have a process you follow once you have really worked through the customer's why? Do you do you brainstorm? Do you get in a room and just wander around? Is there a process you follow or how does that work for you? I would love to tell you, yes, I have a very <laughs> well-defined process uh, and it works all the time. Yeah, but yeah. but uh, I think each time it's different. Yeah. So sure, you try to you know, brainstorm, you try to bring the team together and say, hey, we need to solve that problem. Let's have an open discussion. But really, it, it's going to vary. But yes, we have a super defined process. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love your sense of humor. So it sounds like what I heard you say is it is really 
just listening. It really comes down to listening really, really well and listening with empathy and being able to understand when a customer says, well, I want this feature or when anybody, I mean, this is pretty much with all people, right? When I want this, digging into it a little bit more to understand the why behind that and yeah. then take it from there, either enhancing something that may exist or more than likely developing a whole new piece of technology. Yeah, How absolutely. exciting. How exciting. Thank you for sharing. All right. Uh, so, Mr. Listener, when you think you've got it, I'm going to ask you this. Are you pushing the workload to where the data is? Do you understand your data? And do you understand whether your data is met with quality or not? If you answer no to any one of those, you're going to have to get JC on the call. Hey, where can folks reach you, JC, if they want to, to learn more or where would you advise that the listeners go? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Twitter. Anybody can uh, hit me on all these uh, platforms and I'll be very happy to connect. Very good. We'll put that in the show notes so people can take a look. Uh, also, obviously, you can go to the IBM's webpage and talk, uh, look up integration governance. Uh, you'll see the technologies that we have available. I know there's all, more technologies in the industry, but check out IBM. Get a chance. You're on it today, JC. You know what? I love you, and the listeners don't know this, because I can see you. You come into this podcast, and you have a Making Data Simple shirt on. That's fantastic, man. Yes. <laughs> Look, you'll always have a place in my heart just for that. You thought ahead. That means a lot to me. Hey, two more questions. French wine or American wine, man? Okay, I don't want to create enemies here. <laughs> um you got to pick one. Come on, man. There's, okay, so there is no, one side or the other. So I, I'm sorry to many listeners, but there is really, really, really no question. French wine. <laughs> okay. Well, is it a, a Bordello or what? Personally, I'm a Bordeaux. Yes, Bordeaux. Very good. I like them both. I think they're very different. I think I've gotten used to American wines, wines in Napa. And now when I have French wine, I got to get used to that. Once I get used to that, it's hard to go back. Anyway. I like them both. I just think I like wine. What do you do for fun when you're not doing integration and governance uh, all day, all the time? I take pictures. Take pictures? Yeah. iPhone? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do a lot of photos. What are you taking pictures of? Just anything and everything? Or do you have a specific... Anything, everything. Love walking in a city and taking pictures. So you're, you're the guy in the city that I'm saying, what is he doing? And you're just taking pictures of things that interest you, anything and everything. Yep. What do you do with those pictures? That's actually really interesting. Not much. Uh, it's a good hobby, gets you out. But do you ever go back through them? That's what I find. I, yeah. I take pictures and never see them again. I mean, the thing is, in the, you know, 20 years ago, I was actually, you know, when dealing with the actual films, Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing all the processing and uh, I don't even know how these terms, uh, what these terms are in English because yeah. I never use them, but you know, all the, the development and, and with numeric cameras, you know, all that piece is gone. Yes. So you just do the same thing, but in uh, uh, using a piece of software in a computer to improve uh, your pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got it. So you were a Kodak fan and now Kodak's gone. Yeah, you're all digital. And now oh, you got to yeah. do the digital. But I, I would imagine there's just as much effort that has to go into it because I see like even my kids, you know, they're playing with all the different 
lenses and different stuff like that. Anyway, I presume that still holds true. Absolutely. Hey, thank you for being on the podcast. This has been great. Uh, learned a lot. Uh, we'll get it out as soon as possible, probably here in a couple of weeks. You're a man among men. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to be part of it. All right. And thank you, listeners, again, as always. You know, rate us on your favorite uh, podcast of choice and hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. We'll see you on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. <laughs>